Hey, it's your friend Jason Mraz, the official spokesperson of the Good Tidings Foundation. And what an honor it is. On behalf of Good Tidings Foundation, we welcome you to the fourth season of the Good Tidings podcast that highlights the goodness in people. This episode is proudly sponsored by the San Francisco Giants. You can go to sfgiants.com for updates on the Giants and information on game tickets, special events, and promotions for the 2023 season. And now, enjoy the podcast. As we kick off the fourth season of the Good Tidings podcast, we are airing a special double episode highlighting all the amazing work that is happening in the surf therapy world. I just spent the weekend with my first guest, the founder of the Little Optimist Trust from Cape Town, South Africa. So welcome to the Good Tidings podcast, Greg Burdish. Hi, thank you for having me. Very excited to be uh, from across the other side of the world. For sure. So I had a pleasure to speak to you and a group of the surf therapy practitioners as part of our GT Accelerator program, where I share what I've learned over the past 30 years of doing good tidings and try to help others succeed and get motivated. And during that conference, you stood up and had some very nice things to say about what we were doing. So I appreciate that. And what was the motivational factor after I had my speech for you? I think you just struck a chord with, with what you had said to the group. And we all in, in, in the charity space, we find ourselves giving, giving, giving so much. And we go through these waves where you have the highs and the lows and the ultimate highs. But when the lows are there, you know, it saps everything from you. And, and all we run on is, is the passion. And when that wavers, then sometimes we need other people to pick us up. Because when, when our passion dies and our purpose for, for doing more good, when that dies and wavers, then everyone around us sort of, you know, wavers and, and it dies slowly as well. So you just happened to be that spark at the moment who gave me, you know, just lightened my day and left me thinking that other people have gone through this as well. And some of your words were just, just really resonated with me and what you had done and your path, which had been in a way similar to mine. So I found myself really reinvigorated by you. Yeah, it was, it was so good. And your passion is, it definitely comes through. You've led such an inspirational life. So let's just start out about hearing how life was for you growing up in South Africa. Yeah, you know, I was born in the early 70s. And it was still the apartheid days, which I didn't know too much about. Obviously, I was very young. I grew up in a, in a middle-class family in South Africa during that time. As I grew older, I wasn't a kid with a lot of self-esteem and self-belief. I was the eldest of three brothers. I just didn't believe in myself, and I felt I, I would never become much in life and I wasn't good at anything. So I, I lost my self-belief at, at a very young age, which is strange because I had a most a wonderful parents and brothers. And I was, I suppose, one of the lucky ones really. And as a teenager, I had very bad acne and my brothers were always better than me at everything that they did. They always made the teams, they represented the first teams, they made the provincial teams and I never made any of them. So I always had this chip on my shoulder, I suppose, feeling that even though I was the oldest in the family, I wasn't as good as my brothers. And then I was a bullied child. I was a bullied, insecure child through my teens. And weirdly enough, we had a national service when we were younger. When you finished school, you could choose to go and study or you could go into the national service and do your army or navy or air force. You didn't have a choice, but you had to go and do one of them. This was right at the end of apartheid. So it wasn't as serious for me as many of, of the youngsters before me. 
we sort of knew that the old government and the old regime were dying and we wouldn't have to go and fight on the border or anything because Nelson Mandela was going to come into power and it was all happening at the time. It was a very interesting time to, to be alive, actually. So I actually got a Navy call-up, which and I'd grown up in the water. That was one of, you know, one of the lucky things and where I found my passion and, 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 and everything, the ocean has actually, you know, led me to where I am today. And that's where I met you through the, the International Surf Therapy Organization that led me there. It's uh, saved my, my life many times. It's put my life in danger many times, but it's saved my life many times. And I got a Navy call-up. So I thought, oh, well, with, with a few of my friends, we thought, oh, well, let's just go and do this one and a half years in the Navy because it'll be fun. And I had this background in sailing and surfing and water sports. So when I found myself in the Navy, I actually found that I was a leader and that I was good at some things. And it pulled me out of a dark place. And it actually showed me that I had some leadership skills. So I turned a negative, somehow that negative turned into a positive. And later on, I was I followed another passion and I got involved in setting up one of the first surf travel companies in Africa, in the Southern Hemisphere, in fact. And years later, I was traveling in Madagascar and we were exploring Madagascar and setting up surf travel in Madagascar. And I picked up a rare tropical undiagnosed bacteria, which attacked my heart valve. And it went undiagnosed for almost a year. And by the time they realized where it was and which was in my heart, I was rushed in for emergency open heart surgery at the age of 30. And that was a long road. I spent the next six years literally fighting for my life. I underwent two open heart surgeries where they replaced the valves in my, in my heart. And I spent 200 days in hospital, at some stages up to 90 days on intravenous drips fighting for my life, where they were trying to find out what the tropical bacteria was that kept reoccurring and attacking my heart valves, even though they cut away the heart valves and replaced them, it would come back again. And eventually a, a very clever doctor put together this, this concoction of drugs and put me on, on drips in a hospital for three months. And they literally pumped me full of every antibiotic known to man. And they killed this thing, touch wood, they killed it. And I've been very good ever since, but it was a long road. And during that time, I met a small baby in the hospital and this baby literally changed my life. I lay fighting for my life in the ICU with, with this baby and I would hear him breathing every night. I'd actually been lying there feeling incredibly sorry for myself, thinking all those cliches, why me? And I had seen a, an elderly man of about 85 years old, wheeled in next to me, he had also had an open heart surgery. And there I was lying at 30 years old, having had an open heart surgery. And I lay there very sick with a ventilator in my mouth after weeks of trying to recover my lungs collapsing, thinking, why me? Why me at the age of 30? And then this baby was wheeled in next to me. And the baby was four months old, and he was having his second heart operation. And I went from thinking and feeling so sorry for myself to actually realizing how lucky I was. Lucky that I had got to 30 years old. Lucky that I'd had lived a whole life. And there was this baby fighting for his life at four months old. And my whole world changed. And that baby fought every night lying next to me. And I could hear him breathing and fighting. The doctors gave him no chance. And I could hear everything that was going on around me over those next couple of weeks. And I could hear his father reading to him and speaking to him. And I thought, who am I to give up when this baby's fighting for his life like that? And so we lay there fighting for the next couple of weeks together. And we both survived. And I sort of realized then that if I got through this and I survived, I would 
want to dedicate my life to helping children who were in less fortunate situations. It came, it didn't snap like that, but I spent, because I spent so much more time after that occurrence in the hospitals, I saw all these other children and these other children had nothing. And I come from South Africa where there is very little. And I was lucky. I was in a private hospital. I had good doctors and nurses. And I went on to meet all these children who were in these state hospitals in very poor conditions with often no parents around, with no means. And then the worst thing was they had nothing to live for. They had nothing to go back for. They had nothing that they wanted to get better for. And that was the scary thing. I wanted to get out of my, I didn't have a wife and kids at the time, so I didn't have that to live for, but I had the ocean and I loved sailing and I loved surfing. And all I wanted to do was go and walk in the ocean and watch the sunset again and feel the waves wash over me. And, I, and these kids had nothing. And so I thought, you know, if I can get through this, I would want to try and find a way to inspire them to not only survive, but thrive afterwards. And that became my mission. And that's where I am. I've ended up now 20 years later. The doctors never thought I would, I never thought I would get to this, this age. But 20 years later, I'm alive, which is amazing. And I'm very thankful for that. And I've been helping children, mostly children, for almost 20 years in different forms. And uh, that's where I find myself now and how I met you. Yeah, it's such an interesting story because I, I find in my travels the best charities or the best givers are inspired by something that happened in their life. It's not someone that grew up and said, oh, I want to be charitable my whole life. And that story is, is, is so great. And I know from that, you started a couple of organizations. So let's first start to talk about Shark Spotters and that inspiration and what that's all about and how it's thriving now today. Yeah, that was very interesting. In 2004, so I'd already undergone my first open heart surgery. And again, if I look back, you know, I wonder if, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer. I wonder if I would have even thought about starting something called Shark Spotters. I'll explain to you about what it is. If I hadn't already been through the situation and met that baby and had my mind totally changed in how I see the world and how I perceive people and helping not only people, but animals and, and, and doing more good and thinking differently, I think, thinking out of the box and in different ways. And I, had, I had, had to relearn to surf after my first operation, literally, because it took me 18 months to recover. And I started right from scratch again, not knowing if I'd ever be able to surf. And so I went back to one of the most sort of iconic beaches in Cape Town where learn to surfing happens and where all the kids go and where the longboarders are. And it's become quite a place in South Africa now. It's known for very good, fun waves. And I wouldn't normally have gone and surfed there so much because I was on a higher level and I didn't have kids at the time. So I wouldn't have spent as much time there. But I found myself back there because of the situation I'd, I'd been in. And I actually had some of my friends out from America, from Vermont. And uh, I had taken them surfing. And while we were in the water, a giant great white swam through the lineup and on that day there must have been about 500 people in the lineup and we got to the beach and our area had seen the shark and we had all come in but the rest of the people hadn't seen the shark and it took maybe 20 to 30 minutes for the whole stretch of beach to actually be alerted to the fact that there was a great white swimming around among them and having traveled the world and having been involved in life-saving for many years I just thought no in, in the 20th century how could this be? Um, in the 21st century, how could this be? And 
if it takes so long to, to clear a beach, there must be better ways. And obviously, I've seen what they do in Australia. In South Africa, they're not as set up. And we, although we have life-saving, we don't have life-savers on every beach, not like, you know, and they're not as professional as in the USA. So I thought, well, let's try and start something. And at the time, there'd actually been an attack about a year before that. And everyone had been arguing about what they should do. They'd been blaming everyone. They had been, there's, there's an island with seals on it. They had, there was all sorts of discussions about whether they need to cull the seals and kill the seals. The fishermen had been been granted a larger fishing permit more so they could fish more. And there were trawlers going back into one of the harbors close by. So the fishermen were being blamed. Everyone was pointing. They were, they were doing shark cage diving at the, you know, a couple of miles up the coast. And everyone was pointing fingers at everyone and blaming everyone. And the city of Cape Town was blaming people. And the shark cage divers were blaming people and the shop owners. But no one was doing anything. So we just thought, let's just do something. You know, everyone can point fingers, but what do we do? So we're very lucky. We have a lot of elevation there, uh, mountains right on the coast. Some of our friends had worked as trek net fishermen for the Yellowtail, where you get a spot to go up on the mountain and you can actually see down using polarized glasses. You can see into the water and you can see where the fish are. So we knew this. And as surfers, having surfed there all our lives and having fished there as, as young students to make extra money, we knew this. So we thought, you know, why don't we just solve this problem by putting by hiring one of the car guards who looked after the cars literally in the in the car park <laughs> put him on the beach and we trained him up we sent him on a first aid course and we put a spotter on the mountain there was actually a, another lifeguard that we a guy called monwa bc who still works for shark spotters now 18 years later he's a field manager there and we put him on the mountain and we gave him binoculars and polarized glasses and we actually i sourced the old war siren which was up in johannesburg and we flew that down and we bolted oh, it. We, we literally <laughs> bolted we, we, we spoke to the city and we said, can we start this thing called shark spotters and look out for sharks? And the city said, are you absolutely crazy? There's no such thing. You cannot do that. The liabilities will be way beyond. We are not getting involved in that. You cannot put any sirens up. You cannot put flagpoles anywhere. You will be charged. You will get fined. Do not do it. And we didn't listen. During the night, we, we went in with, a, with an electrician friend of mine and my brother-in-law. And we literally bolted a flagpole to the, to the main sort of public walkway in, in the front of the beach. And we, we hot-wired a war siren into the, the, the wiring of the toilet block at the beach. <laughs> and, and that is how Shark Spotters was born. And we had our spot on the mountain with the red spear. And then we had a shark spot on the beach. And he had a trigger that he could trigger the alarm. And Shark Spotters was born. And a few days later, the city council came down and in a very aggressive way asked me to please remove everything because this is 100% illegal and I'm going to be arrested. And I just looked at the guy and I actually just said, I'm happy to do this, but I just would like your name. And he, was, he asked me, why would you want my name? I said, I need your name so that when we take this shark spotting system down and a small kid is eaten by a shark in the next couple of months, we want to know who the person is who has taken this siren and, and flagged down so that that mother of that child will know why shark spotters were taken away. And we never heard from them again. That was the end of it. And 16, I think, no, it took about, it took about 10, 12 months. We actually then got World Wildlife Fund, got hold of us because they saw what we were doing. And we had write-ups around the world. We were actually in the New York Times. We were in the newspapers in China even. And the World Wildlife Fund approached us and we got funding for shark spotters. 
And then the city of Cape Town had a bit of egg on their face and they came in and, and started funding it as well. And the rest, as they say, is history. And we are now on nine beaches in the Western Cape in South Africa. We have just been asked to start on the east coast of South Africa now as well, because there was a spate of shark attacks. We've been flown over to Australia to assist them start something called Shark Watch, which, which has happened. We've helped shark mitigation on Reunion Island in the, in the Indian Ocean. And our shark data now of 18 years is some of the most in-depth and most used great white shark data used around the world in every organization. So yeah, we've become globally recognized. We've got 43 staff, permanent staff, and we cover now 10 beaches in South Africa, and they're using us a couple of beaches in Australia as well, which is fantastic. Yeah, and again, sometimes you have to fight through the red tape of people thinking it's not a good idea to show them how great an idea that that was, and I applaud you for that. Then five years ago, you started an organization called the Little Optimist Charity. Can you tell about the motivation of that and what's that mission? Yeah, so Larry, it was, that was going back to that baby. And, and although I worked with numerous charities over the years and I got involved in setting up Shark Spotters, which I, I was involved in running for two years, and I'm still, I sit on the committee now. I've never been an employee. I've never, never earned a cent from Shark Spotters. And I, I just sit on the committee now and help oversee it. And it's run as a public benefit organization, which is the same as a 501 like you guys have. And it has its own CEO and, it, and it's been running very successfully for 18 years. I got involved with helping a children's trust in South Africa and raising a lot of money for them as well. After that, as well as the Heart and Stroke Foundation in South Africa, I became a spokesperson for them as well. And then I just thought about, I thought, I think you've mentioned it in some of your books as well. I, I wasn't able to direct the money to the causes that I wanted to when I was acting as an ambassador and raising money for some of the bigger charities. And understandably, I, I understand it. I would be a champion for them and I'd raise quite a lot of money and I started painting hospitals. We painted one of the biggest, like we painted the biggest, we raised a million rand and painted the biggest hospital in Southern Africa called the Red Cross Children's Hospital. And after that, I had this idea of going to renovate and upgrade hospitals and clinics and under-resourced schools all over Africa, which we're doing now. But I couldn't do it unless I could control where the money went, obviously, because their next project was their cancer wards and I, want, I, I didn't want to do my next fundraising for their cancer wards. They had a lot of funding coming from the United, United Kingdom, and I wanted to channel mine into, into other projects. So we started the Little Optimist Trust, which was all because of that little baby, that little baby Adam that I met. And it was because of a promise I made to my father. The strange thing is an optimist, we all know what an optimist is, and it's the greatest name, but there's actually a little sailing boat called an optimist dinghy. And it's a tiny little boat. It's a little square children's sailing dinghy. It's very short. It's very fat. It's got a funny little sail and it doesn't go very fast. And it's actually the biggest sailing class in the world. The Optimus dinghy is the biggest, the biggest sailing class in the world. There's over 150,000 Optimus scattered around the world with world Optimus world champs, African world champs, South American uh, Optimus champs, European Optimus champs. So it's a very recognized boat, but it's got the greatest name. It's an Optimus and it is the greatest Optimus because it's, it's not a boat, but it is a boat. It wants to be like all the other big boats. And I had this idea of writing a children's book because I, as a kid, when I was a fully child, 10, 12 year old, I got into my little optimist and I wasn't good at, at many things, but I could get into my little optimist sailing dinghy. And we stayed on a little, on a lagoon at that time. 
And I would literally get into my little Optimus thingy and I would sail out as a 10, 12 year old out towards the horizon in, in, in the lagoon. And I would forget all my problems. I would forget my, the people bullying me. I would forget that I felt that I wasn't good at anything. And I would have the wind in my hair and waves like breaking around me. And I would sail off literally into the sunset. And, and it was my happy place. And when I lay in hospital and I met that baby, I remembered, weirdly enough, I thought about my Optimus again. I remembered a dream that I had told my father when I was 10 or 12 years old. And I said, Dad, one day I'm going to sail an Optimus from Cape Town to Longabon, which is about, it's about 120 kilometers, which is about 80 miles. And my father, being the kind of guy he was in, in those days, a very positive guy, he said, that's a great idea. You should do it. Now, an Optimus is, is built for children under 50 kilograms. It shouldn't go in the, in the ocean, and it definitely shouldn't be sailed by an adult it's for lakes and lagoons. So it was a bit of a crazy idea. But when I lay there again with this baby, I thought, you know what, if I survive, I said that to my dad, and why do us as adults forget our dreams? We all forget our dreams. How many people have wanted to become a fireman, have wanted to go to Antarctica, have wanted to help people, have wanted to do wonderful things, but you get tied up in your life of mundanity or paying the bills or having children or pleasing others or having to work. And you put all those, and you, you think it's just a child's fantasy. But, you know, I realized right then, obviously, because I had this life-threatening situation, why can't you follow your dreams? And I thought, you know what? Because I promised my dad, if I live, I'm going to follow that childhood dream. And I want to, if I do it, I want to inspire others, not only children, but adults to actually remember their childhood dreams and do what they wanted to do when they were 12 years old. You don't have to, obviously things change. And that's what I do when I talk to children and adults as well. Obviously things change and the world isn't an easy place sometimes for many people at times, but you don't have to be the fastest. You don't have to be the greatest. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to have all the money in the world to go and do something that you dreamed of as a child. You might not be able to do it in the exact same way, you might not be able to become the president of, of the United States or play for the national team, but you can do something in your own way. And, and that's what I wanted to show people. So I, I literally did. I climbed in my little Optimus thingy and I sailed. I actually, I upped the ante and I, I decided to do 200 kilometers and sail from a place called Cape Hunkler, but around Cape Point, which is the Cape of Storms, very famous among seamen, the Cape of Good Hope, the Cape of Storms, which is very wild. And I sailed across False Bay, which is very shark infested, around Cape Point, and then up the west coast of Africa to Longabon Lagoon, which was about 120 miles, about 200 kilometers. I was doing 200 kilometers for the 200 days I'd spent in hospital, and I wanted to raise 200,000 rand at the time, which was not very much in dollars nowadays, but at the time it was a little more. But I was trying to raise that money for a new ICU at the Red Cross Children's Hospital. And I went off and I did this amazing journey purely for my dad. I didn't have any money. I tried to get some sponsors. No one would sponsor me. And just before I went, I met this amazing producer who his child was, I had a little four-year-old at the time and his, his child was at the school my child was. And he said, I, I've seen your website. I see the work you do for children. Cause at that stage I was already going into hospitals and delivering toys and, and doing inspiration days. He said, I love your idea. I love this journey you're going on. I'm between jobs. I'm going to help you find some funding and let's make a little movie. And so he did that. He found some funding. They made this little documentary about my journey. And they came and followed me sailing up the, uh, this 200 kilometers and 
and all the trials and tribulations I had. And then he made this amazing documentary based on my story and then the children I met along the way. And the beautiful thing is when I actually came into near the end of the journey, out into the ocean where I was coming in the one night, it took me eight sailing days over two weeks because I had to hunker down in this tiny little boat with, when there were storms and huge waves and I had to wait on the land and stay on the land and sleep there and wait for a calm day or a break in the swell to, to go out again. And some days I did no more than 10 miles because of the conditions in this tiny little boat. And we got knocked over and rolled and really it was a, it was a torrid time. But this little boat was a metaphor for children, for people just showing that you can do it in your own way. I wasn't trying to be the fastest. I wasn't trying to be the first. I wasn't trying to be the best. I just wanted to show kids that this little boat, who no one thought much of, no one said it was possible, could do it in his own way. Slowly and steadily in his own way. He had a big heart and he would never give up. And that's what we did. And we did it over two weeks, eight days of sailing. And they followed me and they filmed this amazing adventure. And as I was saying, on one of the last days, out into the bay to welcome me in came the National Sea Rescue, which is like your Coast Guard. And this boat came out, and on this boat was a young 16-year-old boy called Adam Klopper. And Adam <laughs> Klopper was that baby that lay in the hospital next to me 16 years before that. They're such great stories. It was amazing. It was absolutely, I mean, I get goosebumps now. And I had been in communication with his father, but I hadn't seen him in 16 years. And uh, it was one of the most touching times of my life. And the amazing thing is I work with Adam now. Adam comes into the hospitals with me and he comes and inspires children who are in the same situation as him. And we bring other survivors into the hospitals. We go and deliver presents to and do talks at and do movie nights at and do pizzas and all sorts of things. And we bring amputees and heart and stroke patients and patients like Adam, especially young guys like that, because the kids can see themselves in someone like that. And they see that if someone can get through it, and become a, a national sea rescue member like him and play soccer like he does, even though he had two heart operations, they too can survive. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting too is the same needs in South Africa that you're taking care of are the same exact needs we are doing here in America with Good Tidings Foundation. And I love the, the refurbishment of the hospitals. I'm all in on that sort of thing. And the teddy bear handout and the toys it's just such a similarity of two groups that just started by chance. When you stood up and, and started talking and said to me how you went in with the teddy bears, I was like, you don't understand how you just, my spirits, everything, just to show that you'd walked the same road and what you'd done and then reading your books, how similar you think in a way and how you've inspired me. Because you forget things. I've been reading your book and I forget like how good I was at not paying for things in the beginning and asking people and hounding people for free stuff. I always said I could, I can't ask for money for myself, but I can ask for money from anyone for children. And I will make them, I will work them so hard because if it's not for me, I will raise that money. But in all the melee of things that have happened over the last, and it's been very hard with COVID, like a lot of people have struggled. I've lost some of my course because you get so caught up in the, in the operational of, of running a charity and a, and a five equivalent of a 501 with the, the governance and the finances and trying to pay your staff and, keep it afloat and trying to shift and, and you end up doing things that you don't really want to do and that you're not that good at doing because you have to keep it afloat. And I was just in that sort of space and, 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 and you forget about some of the things. And I'd like, I was 
starting to write grants and, and I hate writing grants and doing all that finance <laughs> and I hate it. And then you told me, and I don't know if you told me it was in your book, but the thing about grants and like how you can rather just fundraise and grants are great, but don't spend all your time with grants. And, and, and I've seen exactly what you said. Now we had our first grant and that's really come through an international grant. And it is the red tape around it and what you can do and can't do and reporting and where the money can go. And when things shift, as you know, they do with the charity and you have to, money comes in somewhere else and you've got to spend it here to do this. The grants are, are so much hard work and I almost have to employ someone now to do that for me because I'll drop the ball doing it. It'll take me a hundred hours where someone else will take 20 hours. But while I'm spending a hundred hours on that, my charity and all my love and the work that I'm doing and should be doing, I'm not doing. Yeah. The one unfortunate part of American economics is that the expectation is for growth year over year and more money and more this and more giving. But what I tell charities, you'll get to a point that you'll want to stay at, really. You don't want to keep fighting because then it's more staff and it's more headaches and it's more this and more that. Get to a point, get to your sweet spot and just stay there and keep, you're able to keep the way you were started and the your mission on how you were founded, you're able to do those things. And I think that's a huge lesson that some don't learn and then they just flounder and go away. So I think charities are run differently. And oftentimes board of directors come to charities, they're super successful in the business world. And that might not apply in the charity world. You know, it's a different beast. So, I mean, I just want to applaud you. I look forward to this partnership of ours, so to speak, that we can inspire each other, help each other. We'll put in the show notes all the different ways people can help you, the way they can get your two children's books, the way they find out more about The Little Optimist and about Shark Spotters. And just congrats on a life well lived. You look back now and there was a reason for all those struggles and all that stuff you had to go through, Greg. And my hat's off to you and all you've done. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. And thanks for inspiring me and, and reinvigorating me again. And you know, thanks for having me on your podcast. And we'll be chatting in the future, I'm sure. Thank you so much. So this month's podcast finds us in Manhattan Beach at the annual International Surf Therapy Organization Conference, sitting in our brand new Good Tidings Airstream van with the founder of Swell. So Rob Sanderson, welcome to the Good Tidings podcast. Thank you, sir. Pleasure to be here. So in search of a more holistic approach to my own health condition, I stumbled upon the International Surf Therapy Organization and have spoken annually at their conference and they are now part of our GT Accelerator program where we pass on to other organizations what we've learned over the past 30 years. Through this relationship, I've met so many interesting people doing such amazing work, and this is where I first met my guests this month. So Rob, tell us first about your professional background and how the idea of Swell, spelled with one L, came about. Sure, yeah, I was a police officer for 18 years. started in Gulfport, Mississippi, of all places. Uh, and soon after my starting down there, Hurricane Katrina rolled through. And I'd always kind of lived on the coast, traveled to surf quite a bit. After Katrina came through, I was recruited by a group of police officers into the Kansas City area. Spent about 14 years in Kansas City. Did everything from undercover operations to working out at the academy. I was a patrol sergeant. 
just did a whole gamut. And eventually in 2018, as a patrol sergeant, I was injured in the line of duty. I was wrestling with a veteran who was trying to run into traffic to end his life. And I popped up my thoracic pretty good and wasn't able to heal from it. So I've since retired. Swell came about really through kind of chance. I consistently would make surf trips to kind of empty my bucket. And I didn't really understand why I was doing it until one time I brought somebody they'd never been. And I got to see the physical change in that officer from getting him out into the water. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. And how ironic, because we'll get into the mission a little bit more, that your service as a police officer ended while saving a veteran, technically. Yeah. And I, what I love is looking at the Swell website, the mission, reinvigorating our heroes through surf missions. Was it hard to land on that exact mission? And I love the word reinvigorating. I thought that was clever. Yeah, I, it was actually quite easy because, you know, like I said, I could see it. So it was easy for me to describe. I struggled with the concept of therapy for a number of reasons. So I think, you know, wordsmithing a little bit with the word reinvigoration as opposed to therapy helps kind of gain some buy-in with the communities we're serving. So that's the best word I'd come up with to really describe that feeling after I surfed and then also recognize it in others. Yeah. So you're in Kansas City, as landlocked as you can be, and you say, I can start a charity that serves others, but I'm going to take them surfing. And how does that work? That's the magic of it. People who start non-for-profits, as you know, are pretty creative people, and they go, I think I'm going to try this out. And, and the beauty of being so far from the Pacific is you get to separate these men and women of service from the traumas that they've experienced and from that environment and bring them to a whole new place and expose them to new people, new ideals, new environments like the Pacific Ocean. So as odd as it sounds, that's I think what makes Swell special. And of these people you serve, how many are first responders versus veterans? Is it fairly evenly split? There's kind of a mixed bag as most of you probably are aware there's a lot of crossover when people in their service with the military. A lot of times they want to find themselves in a first responder role. So I would say a fair number of our participants, the majority are currently active first responders. We do have plans to formalize a little bit better partnerships with other VSOs or veteran service organizations to find vetted, stabilized, non-crisis uh, veterans to take out because the last thing you want to do is take an unknown element and then have them triggered and not knowing exactly how to respond to that particular person's needs. And these are adults. Are some of these adults seeing the ocean for the first time? Yeah, somebody we took out two weeks ago, he hadn't been on an airplane in 30 years because he was afraid to fly. So he would drive everywhere, never been in the Pacific and never felt how cold or how powerful that could be. Yeah, uh, how interesting. And so how did you land on Huntington Beach as the landing spot for all these trips? Network. So the man that taught me to surf 25 years ago lives in the Huntington Beach area, and he's a veteran and has a really great network of people and volunteers that we've leveraged to kind of put these together. So our logistics coordinators out there, our volunteer coordinators out there, our social media person is out there. A couple of our board members live out there. So when we show up at the beach, really those men and women prop us up and kind of take over for us and they've got everything ready. So you fly in from landlocked states in the United States, you land in Orange County, you head to Huntington Beach. How long are they there and what's the setup like? 
sure, we, we land on a Friday, immediately take them to the water, right? I mean, we don't even drop our bags, right to the water. They're met there by one of our, our volunteers, Joe Moreno, and he does a water safety briefing with them. Make sure that everybody understands the dangers, the risk. This is what to look for. We look at the water before we go in and see if there's a rip, see what the tides are doing, see what the current's doing. Um, then we go back up, circle up on the beach. We do a little meditative breathing, some yoga, try to bring their anxiety down just a bit. And then we pair them up with a volunteer coach and right into the water. At the conclusion of that, usually a couple hours, we take them and check into a, one of the beach homes that we've rented. We usually do a different Airbnb, uh, depending on the needs for the mission. And usually they're very nice Airbnbs to make sure that they're comfortable. Each night we do like a communal family style meal. And if you can only cut carrots, you're cutting the carrots for the salad, but you're participating in, in making that meal. And then we sit down as a group together alongside some of the mentor surf coaches as well, and just have very organic conversations. It could be anything from baseball to the suicide that they witnessed the week prior and how they're, how they're dealing with that. We're often joined by a police chaplain in the LA County area. He's a great guy. He's really interesting because he's equally as good of a listener as he is a speaker. And I think those people are often rare. Just a very empathetic guy that has a lot of legitimacy as he's a retired police officer too. Usually an event day, Saturday, and then Sunday, another free surf session. And those last about four hours or so. The event day, we open up to any veteran first responder or their family members to come out and learn to surf and we'll pair them with a surf coach. And again, more communal meals. And then Monday's usually kind of a, a day for them to kind of go out go shopping, grab last minute pictures before we fly back home. And do these, how does the selection process, how do you vet these people? And is there more people of need of this service than you even have time and funds for? Oh, absolutely. If you've been in this career field, whether it's veteran or active duty or law enforcement, any amount of time, then you're carrying some sort of cumulative or acute stresses or traumas. So, it depends. Like our first mission was a core group of police officers who had their best friend killed in line of duty and a couple of them were on scene for it. We've done trips to where a Sacramento County deputy was shot and a CHP officer saved his life. And they really hadn't spoke since the incident. We reunited them at the beach house along with other couple of firefighters that were separately on, on that trip. And we got to see them have that kind of really cool conversation that was cathartic for both of them just to recount the events, but in a very natural way. It was not a forced therapeutic session. So a lot of referrals. I actually am fortunate enough now to have chiefs of police reaching out to me, asking if I can help their people, which is very, very humbling. And I'm super honored to be able to do that. And how much does a trip cost and how many go at one time typically? Typically we take anywhere from four to five out and I accompany them on every trip. The trips range to be anywhere from about six to 7,000 per, and that's just operational costs. That doesn't cover any sort of salary or anything. Everybody's volunteer based to this point. So yeah, about $7,000 would, would cover a trip. Yeah, and I know we're here at this conference today and one of the first groups that spoke today, you were on that panel with police officers from the UK yeah. where their government pays for them as police officer surfers to take the officers out. So hence, they've seen the issue and have taken it on. No need to form a charity because our police department pays for us to do this. You think that's something we'll see in this country? I hope so. It's difficult because I think where we are as a society and how we kind of view funding 
with the police is very, budgeting is difficult and problematic with government, regardless if it's here or the UK. I don't know that we're in a position now to really push for that. My hope is that we can gain some support, if not monetarily, through leveraging different partnerships within the community to help fund these. I think having connections within the community like organizations do is important. Then also partnering with some of the unions and peer support groups that might have a budget to send somebody to treatment here or there. Yeah. I know up our way in the San Francisco Bay Area, we've created a lot of athletic facilities that are run by PAL, Police Athletic yeah. League. Is PAL a national organization in our country? And could this fall into that? It's international. And actually, we partner with the Police Athletic League in Kansas City, Kansas. And a couple times a year, we'll take a group of their youth and we'll take them for several months to the YMCA. We'll teach them how to swim. And then we'll bring them through a swell mission out to Huntington Beach. So we've served 18 youth to this point, and this is our second year partnering. That's wonderful. You know, I had mentioned our GT Accelerator program, where this year each attendant at this conference was given a book I written about how to start a charity and how to kind of mold it into some success. But during COVID, I was part of a working group in the surf therapy space that you attended. And you mentioned you took something away from that. Can you share? what you took away from one of the things I said and how it may have helped your organization. So first of all, I took a lot of things away from that <laughs> and I'll always be grateful. In particular, you said to try to find somebody with a celebrity status that can be a spokesperson and then leverage their network to do so. And so out of happenstance, Joel Goldberg with the Kansas City Royals baseball reached out to me. He's an announcer and he wanted me to join his podcast. And then after I did his podcast, we met. And so I hounded him, as you do, <laughs> to try to court a board member till he finally agreed to, to join upon the board with us. And he's been great ever since. And it's really helped lend some legitimacy to what we're doing. Because when you see Joel Goldberg's name in Kansas City attached to something, he's such a good person and an honest person. People automatically associate you with those traits. Yeah, it, it's a simple thing. You know, everybody thinks official spokesperson is it. It's really an easy ask on the person because it, it could be very limited to what they really have to do. Yeah. But even just the little thing they may do would be a big thing to a charity. So I, I did stress that again down here this year. And so what is your ultimate hope for SWELL? And tell us again what SWELL stands for. Yeah. So SWELL is Surfways Enjoy Life. At this point, I think, you know, for us to really get funded to where we're budgeting for the following year when we're in the current fiscal years operations would be great. So in order to do that, it's finding lines of revenue, trying to find reoccurring donors and corporate partnerships in order to ensure that we can keep this program going because it is effective. You know, we do take qualitative and, and quantitative data collection and, and we can prove that what we're doing does work. And I think when we can improve the lives of those serving us, we'll in turn receive better service. And will the goal at some point this could become a full-time, would that be a dream full-time position for you? Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. be a full-time dream to run this operation to where I can put all of my focus into that. And, and I think we're scaling towards that and it's important to scale and not just explode. So yeah, that's that would be awesome. Well, certainly, you know, I mean, California, what you do wouldn't be unheard of, certainly, especially for veterans, PTSD programs here in, in California and others. But I think the thought the really out-of-the-box thought is you're taking people from landlocked states in our country and showing them the ocean. Do you see these people now 
wanting to plan their vacations around that, or I need to go to the ocean, or I'm, I, I, yes, I live <coughs> in Kansas City, but I want to be a surfer. Yeah, it's it's funny because a lot of our past participants will join us on these swell missions. They'll find out that we're having one, and they'll come out of their own dime. Some of them are making trips to Hawaii, so it is something that they're wanting to continue to do and continue to just be in the ocean, whether it's once a summer or sometimes more frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I want to congratulate you. I think what you did, I remember when I first heard you speak, I was impressed. And then at the end you said, Oh, by the way, I'm from Kansas city. And I really couldn't figure that out. <laughs> so I think it's just really remarkable what you're doing and I wish you well and the best of luck. I appreciate all of your mentorship to this point, and I'm going to continue to leverage that if possible. Absolutely. I look forward to it. We hope you've enjoyed another episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, hosted by Good Tidings Foundation founder, Larry Harper. For more information on all the good we're doing, go to goodtidings.org.